Welcome to episode 18 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. David Farsi, chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, and president of AAEM, speaks with Dr. Tiffany Osborne, professor of surgery and emergency medicine acute and critical care surgery at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Today, Drs. Farsi and Osborne discuss the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Hour One Bundle. Afternoon from rainy Miami Beach. I'm Dr. Farsi Oost, and today we will be discussing the Hour One Sepsis Bundle with our friend and colleague, Dr. Tiffany Osborne. Dr. Osborne, thank you very much for joining us again, and it's always a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Dave. So, Dr. Osborne, in April 2018, Surviving Sepsis Campaign released the updated sepsis bundle called the One Hour Sepsis Bundle, which combined directly the previous three-hour and six-hour bundles together. To make it a little bit more complicated, there was really no warning or no vetting process Surviving Sepsis Campaign generally follow, meaning that all the organization are sitting at the table, and this was a little bit surprising. Bundle initially came out, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine with ASEP and SCCM initially had said the Hour One Bundle was not ready for prime time in America, and they were waiting for a meeting in January, which I know you were at, and... Then in January 2019, one hour sepsis bundle was officially released. Can you give us a little bit of background? So I think what would be helpful in understanding your question, the answer to your question, is to get a little bit of background. And so when you think of this multi-medical professional um, committee that looks at the data and comes up with guidelines... Um, that is typically done by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines Committee. And it's a pretty extensive process. It usually takes over a year to accomplish. Um, and it's, it's where people are taking a look at, at what data exists, understanding that not all the data is perfect, and that in general guidelines are put together to assist bedside clinicians with information that is currently available. That's the, that's the guiding principle for it. And then the Surviving Sepsis Executive Committee is, you know, the uh, rep- you know, representation from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, ESICM, and SCCM. So what happened here is that in, you know, the 2016 guidelines that were published in January of 2017, this included the vetting process by all the representatives from multiple medical professional organizations. They, they all ended up agreeing with the guidelines. They all signed on to that, the 2016 guidelines that were published in January of 2017. Now, in April of 2018, three members of the executive committee published the one-hour bundle. That's different. So this was done without any input or awareness from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines Committee. So I think what's important to discriminate is that 
people look at the hour one bundle recommendation and they think that all of these different medical professional societies were engaged in that and that is not what occurred. There was not this multi-specialty review that you associate with the guidelines committee. So I think that's the first point, you know, to differentiate. Right. And I think that's a crucial point because as you said, even though it came from the executive committee, the average person who reads the release feel that this was vetted by the entire societies. Right. And so, I mean, it, it has the same logo as it has a very similar name. It, you know, the surviving sepsis guidelines committee is underneath the executive committee. So it's through the same organization, but it came about through a very different process. Discuss about sepsis and lecture always hear that, you know, the sepsis coordinators in the hospital, you know, are trying to jump up and trying to endorse that bundle without truly understanding of the implication of the hour one bundle. Thus, I felt it was very important that we talk about this bundle and give a little bit of background story. Sure, and I think that, again, you know, the big, the big piece is that people are feeling like it's been vetted by this multi-medical professional uh, conglomeration, this, this group of people that came together, and it, and it really wasn't. So I think that that's the number one thing to keep into consideration uh, is that this was brought together. I mean, you have three people who were authors on it, and those three people represent their various organizations, those three organizations. But it was not um, the multiple medical professional organizations that you, that you would associate with the guidelines publication. And I just do want to point out that none of them were emergency medicine base, and most of them were ICU physician, which is a different beast because of the presentation and of, of some of the imp implication of the bundles by itself, which we'll touch in a, in a few minutes. Okay, so before we get into the bundle, I do want to point out for our listener that it's becoming very confusing because there is multiple definition of sepsis. The sepsis 2 definition, which is the definition that is endorsed by Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the classic definition of the SERS sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock. And then the sepsis 3 definition, which really looked at sepsis and septic shock and removed severe sepsis. And in 2016, again, the surviving sepsis campaign adopted the sepsis 3 definition. So actually, there's a caveat to that. So the, what, was, what was utilized in the 2016 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines was a modification of the uh, sepsis 3 definition. So basically, in, in what they did was, and, and this is in part of the introduction where they talk about it in, in the guidelines, but what they, what they did was they took sepsis and septic shock. And they realized that to use the sepsis three definitions, there, there wasn't any data on that um, regarding the, the guidelines, right? So when you go out and you're looking at, okay, what are the different 
um, papers or new data that's supporting ways of thinking about how we do what we do, none of that was based on the new definitions because those definitions didn't exist whenever people were performing their studies. So what the Surviving Sepsis Campaign did is they said, okay, we're going to look at using the terminology sepsis, and it's going to represent what used to be severe sepsis. And septic shock is going to be what used to be septic shock. So if that makes sense. So the so sepsis really was what severe sepsis was in the traditional definitions. And septic shock is what used to be septic shock in the traditional definition. And that's an important distinction because, for example, in the sepsis 3 definition, if you, you could be on a couple of vasopressors and still be considered sepsis, it's only when you have shock plus elevated lactate that it was considered septic shock in the sepsis 3 definition. So it was a, it's an important um, distinction. So it actually isn't the true sepsis 3 definition that was applied to the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. Correct. And furthermore, even though that the sepsis 3 paper said they did not use the QSOFA, which is a quick sequential organ failure assessment as a screening tool, but if you actually go to the paper, they actually use the QSOFA in a way to look at patient. For us in emergency medicine, like you stated before, QSOFA has never really been validated in emergency medicine. So I think it's giving a lot of confusion. Where do we go from here? And where do we do we go from SERS, sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock that CMS is looking at? Or do we, where do we go from here? The thing is, is that definitions are really helpful. Um, but they're all based on the purpose for which they're derived, right? So if I am working in the intensive care unit, and so like you, I work both in the ICU and the emergency department. So if I'm working in the intensive care unit, what I'm looking for is the sickest patients because I know that my resources are very limited. I only have a certain number of beds, and I want to make sure that those beds go to the, to the appropriate patients, meaning those who are the sickest. And, and if I guess wrong... I know that the patient is still in the hospital in a monitored setting and can be brought back later. Okay, so when I'm composing, when I'm, when I'm thinking about what definition that I want to use for, for who's going to be entering the unit, it really is based upon the purpose for which it's derived that I just described for you. I need to find the sickest patients. When I'm working in the emergency department, then if I make a, if I guess wrong there and the patient gets discharged, then there's no, they're no longer, you know, there's no ACT team at home. Well, I guess there is, it's just EMS, but you know, there's, it's, they're no longer in a monitored setting. So if you, if you guess wrong there, then it's, it's more difficult. And so it really, dep- what definition you use really depends on what you're trying to achieve. So if you're looking um, to sort of define that population that is the sickest population, then the sepsis three definition is is probably valid for that. And if you are concerned about losing sensitivity or concerned about who you might miss, then you might look at using the traditional definition, the definition that, that CMS is looking for. So people ask me that question, what definition do I use? It's really based on who they're looking for. Right, and I think that's probably the best answer that anyone can give. That's the answer 
that I typically give is we are on the in emergency medicine when I'm in the ED, we err on the side of caution. If the patient is able to be screened and you're screening him earlier using the service criteria, then and he fits into the sepsis, you're able to identify the disease process early and and to treat the patient, then that's the definition you should use. If the patient doesn't meet your SERS, but for some reason or another ended up into the sepsis 3 Q sofa, then that's the definition you want to use. But at the end of the day, is using, I think at the end of the day, we're going to use a combination of both definition to really screen the patient uh, and try to identify those patients. Sure. Both both definitions have their, I, I say both, but there's more than both, right? Because there's the traditional definitions, there's the CMS definitions, there's the sepsis 3 definitions, and then you know, there's the surviving sepsis campaign definition. So there's multiple definitions that are out there that makes it confusing. If you're in the U.S., I would suggest using the CMS definitions because, you know, that that is associated with a federal mandate. And trying to negotiate more than one set of definitions within a health service organization is exceedingly challenging. So, if you're in the U.S., I would go with the CMS definition. If you're out of the U.S., it depends on the severity of illness that you're looking for and, and how you're identifying the patients. However, the surviving sepsis campaign definition, where basically they took um, sepsis and made it equate to the previous severe sepsis, and then septic shock stayed the same, is a viable option because it's in between the traditional definition and the sepsis three definition so we don't lose every listener i think we've hit the definition and the explanation pretty well and so now i'd like to start entering into the one hour sepsis bundle and i think the biggest resistance from emergency medicine has been really what is time zero and a time zero historically has been defined as the time of triage in the ED. And I think that's been one of the biggest issue with with this bundle is we can have people coming in and they initially don't have SERS criteria with time of triage, but then we identify them and then people say, well, time zero was really time of triage and we're now behind. Our one bundle, I know there's been a lot of talk about this time zero. Well, I would probably take you back a little bit before that as well. So just so that everybody is clear, right? I think published one-hour bundle essentially combines the three and the six-hour bundle into one hour to be initiated at triage. So what you're talking about right now with the hour one bundle, the issues here, one revolves around data, and then the other revolves around decision-making. In, in my opinion, a bundle that is directed towards any specialty practice without review by a mul- by the multi-specialty surviving sepsis campaign guidelines committee and without representation from that specialty community, the one that it impacts is wrong. And it should be disconcerting, if not alarming, for all medical professional organizations that could be impacted. Now, in this current situation, it has not been taken up by the national regulatory organization. So CMS has not adopted that uh, that hour one bundle. But that's where the concern is, is that it was created by a group who was very well intentioned, but were applying it to a environment that they are not familiar with. 
so it it creates consequences so currently you know all existing sepsis definitions require some level of diagnostic testing which requires time to resolve so when we talk about this one hour threshold from the time of arrival to the emergency department the time that they are walking in the door this scenario puts physicians in an untenable position where they're being challenged to provide therapy within one hour for a diagnosis that requires more than one hour to make. And it puts patients in a position of potentially receiving indiscriminate or unnecessary therapy, including antibiotics, which also have unintended consequences. I agree 100% with you. So, and you mentioned this, but I just want to reiterate for listener that initially the surviving sepsis campaign stated the bundle should be used as a time of triage. And after, like you mentioned, the, the concern from, the, from ASAP, from Society of Critical Care, AEM, and other organizations that represent emergency medicine, surviving sepsis campaign came back and stated that time for the hour one bundle is recognition of sepsis, both sepsis and septic shock should be viewed as a medical emergency requiring rapid diagnosing and immediate intervention. So they kind of shifted again their their own non-vetted bundle to say it's the moment we're going to recognize it. Because like you said, you know, it's we're dependent if you're using sepsis 2 on lactate, dependent on certain on WBCs, on certain lab entities that we're going to need to collect and result it before we can make a call. Where this conversation was going. So initially we talked about, okay, there's some confusion surrounding all of these different definitions. And then we went in to say, okay, now, you know, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Executive Committee came out with this original bundle. And that original bundle was a time zero that was initiated at presentation to the emergency department. And there was a significant response to that. And that revolves around the fact that it's very difficult to diagnose something Something within an hour when it takes longer than that to have the data available to actually make the diagnosis. And the, the concern for that, as, as you brought out, was one, it's an untenable position for physicians being challenged to provide therapy within one hour for a diagnosis that it requires more time than that to make. And then the second position is that for the patients who are in a position of receiving potentially indiscriminate or unnecessary therapy for a diagnosis that they don't actually have. And both of those have potentially unintended consequences. And we don't know right now the difference between the two. And I, but I think that we should categorize this, right? So if somebody presents to the emergency department with a clear infection. You you can see initially that they are infected. They have, you know, neck fash or a horrible cellulitis or uh, they're coughing up stuff or they are immunosuppressed and they are in shock. There is no question that there is greater benefit to providing emergent antibiotic therapy. If they are someone who they you're not sure if they're infected but you think they could be, and they are hypotensive, they deserve to have emergent therapy. 
if they are not, if they are normotensive, and you are not sure yet if they are infected, then that patient population probably deserves some time to sort out what they have so you can provide the appropriate treatment. Correct. And I think what you just said, the key is the appropriate treatment and not the throwing antibiotic to everybody. One dose is not going to hurt, which is the one side of the spectrum versus other people who says, you know, one dose can, will create more arm by creating more resistance. And thus, we need to find some middle of the road. Yeah, I think that it makes sense to, if, you, if, you're un, if you're unclear about what you're dealing with, but the patient is in clear duress, they're hypotensive, or they're in some sort of clear physiologic distress, then uh, it, benef- the, it benefits them more to initiate early and quick treatment. If they are presenting and you're not quite sure what they have, they're not hypotensive, they're not uh, significantly tachycardic. It benefits the patient to further delineate what they are treating so they can best provide appropriate therapy. You made a key comment, hopefully our listener has caught. You mentioned that the patient in sepsis and is a complete different patient and patient who's in septic shock. And I think the septic shock patient does deserve a more aggressive style treatment. Giving you know, the fluid and antibiotic to that patient might be more beneficial for them than where the patient sepsis has, still has time for us to make more diagnostic testing. So that was the reason behind the, the meeting that ended up coming about between ASAP and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, ESICM, and um, Society of Critical Care Medicine. Those were the tenants behind it. One being that setting up a one-hour threshold from the time the the patient enters into the hospital puts puts physicians and patients in a potentially compromising situation. And and you're right, because that's the... The data that was published in 2006 by Kumar and all, who demonstrated in a retrospective study that 7.6% increase in mortality for every one hour delay in administrating of antibiotic. So they took that statement and applied it to the, to the overall of all the patient. But this study looked really at septic shock patient, did not look at sepsis severe sepsis, it was really attributed to septic shock. And then the guidelines are generalizing the use of antibiotic for septic shock patient and applied it to all of the definition, to all the, uh, to sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock, which I think that's one of the reasons the bundle has taken a lot of criticism. Right. And so what ASEP said, whenever Whenever that initial hour one bundle came out that said when the patient enters the hospital, that that's when the, the clock started, because it didn't involve the, the multi-specialty surviving sepsis campaign guidelines committee, the multiple different representatives that spent probably about the better part of a year discussing and looking up and uh, you know, trying to evaluate data, when they came back with with this and the bundle after the guidelines were published, it made ASEP feel as though the current that that bundle was an attempt to circumvent that normal deliberative process, and as a result, it was 
because they tried to apply it to an environment that they weren't familiar with, it was ended up fundamentally being aspirational rather than practical. And that the ability to operationalize that was significantly compromised. At the end of the day, the concern was that that kind of action wasn't going to achieve the mutual intended aims of the two medical professional societies. This is, you know, a lot of ink has been written over the past 14, 16 months regarding the one, our one bundle. And, you know, now everybody's starting to question, you know, the role of antibiotic, the role of fluid. And I think it's really when we break it down, it's just not everybody in the early stage, if you're in sepsis, needs the entire set of bundle. It's really the bundle should really fit again more for the septic shock patient. Where do we go from here? So, you know, the we talked about, you know, when we all came together in January to have this discussion. And what I understood from that discussion is that, that the bundle would be revised, that it would be for septic shock patients, and that it would initiate at the point of identification. And when we left that meeting, that was the understanding that, that I had come away with. And then, as you pointed out later, there was a um, revision to the bundle. And, it, and there's been several revision of the bundle. It's, uh, I think, what's causing a lot of confusion. So, Dave, has there been another revision besides that last one? Where, So, my understanding now as to where we're at with that, and help me because maybe you've seen something that I haven't seen, and I can look it up here too. I thought that where we were with that now was that it was time zero's point of identification and, and it was for how they define sepsis and septic shock. You know, in summary, if we look at the, the now the latest published bundle from the Surviving Sepsis campaign on their website as of August 2019, uh, it's really to looking at critical patient with sepsis and septic shock, so there's no differentiation between the two. It's Starting the bundle when you recognize, and they even underline the word recognition, so it's not from triage, and it applies to both sepsis and septic shock, and requiring all part of the bundle. Now, they state, you know, even on their website, that it's the beginning in the first hour from sepsis recognition, but may not be necessarily be completed in the first hour. Right, and if you, if you think about it, if you think about it from the intensivist perspective, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from. I mean, where they're coming from is, you know, who do they see? What population does an intensivist see? We see the sickest patients by definition, right? So the, the absolute sickest patients are the patients that come to the ICU. And I think in general that we might be generalizing what we see to be that whole population of sepsis patients. And the result of that is that the surviving sepsis campaign, which again, if you look, it's like 50 of the 59 clinicians are intensivists. So the worldview there is that all septic patients are like the ones that we see when they come to the ICU. And that's not necessarily true. So 
when you're dealing with the undifferentiated patients, you're not only sorting out who amongst this group is septic and who is not, but you're also sorting out who among that population is sick and who is not. So just to give you an example, right? So patients who, if you look just at septic patients, the majority of those patients initially present through the emergency department. So patients who are discharged with those diagnoses between, depending on who you read, between 60 and 70% of these patients initially present through the emergency department. However, the prevalence of sepsis within the emergency department is really less than 1% when you look at national work. And I can give you Henry Wang's paper on the national epidemiology of sepsis in the emergency department. It was really well done that you can put into your link. But the point is that the worldview when you're an intensivist is that sepsis means that someone is critically ill. And that's actually a small sub subsegment of the population, right? Um, and so the way that we deal with patients who are critically ill, we can't always apply that to every patient. So in Dr. Wang's paper, 20% of patients who were diagnosed by the traditional definition of sepsis were actually discharged from the emergency department. And if you look at that through the definition of the QSOFA, which is looking at a sicker patient population, around 18% of those patients are um, discharged from the emergency department back home. So the worldview that we have that every patient who has a diagnosis, a diagnosis of sepsis is critically ill is incorrect. So what's the point of that? The point of that is when we treat everybody the same way, then we're probably doing a disservice to a subpopulation of that group. So, for example, maybe this is a better way of, of saying this. You know, I have often compared the treatment of septic patients to trauma or, you know, MI or stroke. So... The difference with that is that if you look, for example, with trauma, um, not everyone who presents after trauma automatically goes to the operating room. Not everybody who presents with chest pain automatically goes for a cardiac catheterization. Not everybody who presents for sh with stroke or the symptoms of stroke automatically gets TPA. There is a, a way of triaging that process. So if we were to look at septic shock patients as sort of being like the level one of sepsis so that they got immediate, emergent, prioritized therapy, and then we looked at these patients who we think might be infected, but we're not sure yet, and spent a little bit more time discerning out what the actual etiology that we're treating is, it might be a better model. And correct. And I think that's, you know, this bundle has been plagued by poor quality or not high quality evidence. And they're trying to have a bullet for fix it all. And we know that just from what you stated, we don't have that bullet to fix it all because the patient in the emergency department are not equal to the patient in, in our ICU. They've already been 
in the ICU. They've already undergone testing, screening, treatment, and then gone up to the ICU. Uh, we're seeing complete different patient base, and I think the bundle really needs to be reserved for patients who are hypotensive, patients with lactate greater than four, who are persistent hypotensive, and you know the time is from the recognition of the disease process. And I think the bundle makes sense to me for septic shock patient, but does not make sense to sepsis. And the point here is that, and, and this comes from making decisions without including people who understand the environment, right? So those of us who deal with the undifferentiated patient and trying to triage understand that if you prioritize everyone, you prioritize no one. There's no way that you can get all of those resources to every single patient. If we tried to make every patient a STEMI alert that came in with chest pain, the system would be overwhelmed, right? If, if we tried to make every trauma patient a level one, the system would be overwhelmed it's, it, and costly. It, the way that you use the resources have to be tailored to how the patient is presenting. Right. So as you, as you brought up, I mean, in no other time-sensitive condition, whether it's MI, stroke, or trauma, does a quality metric advocate a therapy prior to the diagnosis of that target condition? No, there's, there's a side effect to everything we do, and we, not every patient will benefit, and do no arm is one of our uh, key model and emergence in medicine. Right, and I think that, in general, a, a lot of this does come from the desire to really do good, right? I, I do believe that in general, the majority of people who are advocating for um, this hour one bundle for, for everyone is doing so because they see the sickest patients and they feel like everybody presents that way because that's all they see. And I, I do feel that this push is because they really feel that they're doing the best thing for, for their patients. And, and they are doing the best things for their patients, that sub-segment of patients that are admitted to the intensive care unit. However, what's unclear is whether or not that can be generalized to everyone. Agree. And as we're reaching the end of this podcast, I'm just going to make a quick summary of this podcast. The definition you use... It should be whatever definition you use, sepsis 2, sepsis 3, but put it in the benefit of the patient. The bundle is not really ready to be used on sepsis, but it should be really focused for septic shock patients. And more to come in the future, that bundle should be implemented by the specialty that it affects, not by another specialty that doesn't deal with those patients. So... I understand the idea and the sentiment of very good intentioned people who see the sickest patients in the intensive care unit 
and want to apply the therapies required for that to everybody. I can understand the sentiment. And I can also understand the idea of we just need to get things done and in so doing exclude the voices of people within the environments that are taking care of a large proportion of these patients. I, I can I can see where someone would have that line of thinking. What I would suggest is that we have to get past the culture of, I need to make a decision right now and get into maybe a thought process that our patients deserve more than the considerations of one service line, any one service line. What they really need is for us to provide a cross-continuum service. And that means that we all need to work together for the benefit of the patient. And that means that we need to understand and actually hear the, what we see in our different perspective environments. And I cannot agree more with you. As always, you always give us a simple, clear to understand explanation. Your expertise on the topic is so crucial. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. To thank all the listeners for sending your comments, for listening and downloading our episode. And I look forward to your comments. And for now, thank you so much for everybody's time. And have a great day. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, check out other podcasts produced by AAEM and find all episodes of Critical Care and Emergency Medicine under the Resources tab and then Publications. Join us again next episode where Dr. Farsi will discuss another issue of importance for critical care and emergency medicine. 